You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 19. A few opening comments. Um, you might have noticed that uh, Pastor Jeff wasn't here today. He usually does announcements. That's because he is in the hospital. He's going to be having heart surgery tomorrow. And so um, some of you uh, probably heard about that already. We have a kind of internal website, which is called The City, which you're all you know, invited to join in your bulletins. There's some instructions about how to get on there. That's a great thing. If this is your church or if you're uh, new to the church, we encourage you to get on there because that's a place where we share prayer requests and things like that throughout the week, a place where we share events and, and we converse with each other. And so uh, we were sharing on there that Pastor Jeff's going to have heart valve replacement surgery tomorrow afternoon. So let's, uh, let's just go ahead and bow our heads right now and pray for that. Uh, it's a big deal. So Lord, we thank you that uh, Pastor Jeff is part of our fellowship, and we thank you that he got to the doctor on time and they were able to see what was going on with his heart. And thank you, Lord, that he's in good hands at the hospital. And so Lord, we ask that you would guide the hands of the surgeons tomorrow. We pray that you would be with his family, be near to them, and draw them close to yourself during this time. You give them comfort and confidence in you and strength, Lord. And so we just ask for a quick recovery for Jeff, and you bring him back to us in good health in uh, the very near future. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Also, just a few other things. You know, big news this week was there's a lot of talk about refugees, and that just made me want to remind you guys that our church uh, has done work with refugees in Europe as they're coming in from the Middle East in the past few years. We're also planning to send a trip this year to Greece, Serbia, the Balkan area to work with these uh, refugees who are coming into that area. And if that's something you'd like to be a part of, we also have two other mission trips going this year, and uh, we just want to keep reminding you about them. We have a missions newsletter on the back table that talks about some of that stuff and some dates, which are also on, the, on our website on the city. So I encourage you to uh, find out more information about those trips if maybe taking a mission trip this year is something you'd be interested in doing. Anyway, lots of good stuff. I uh, do encourage you to visit the back table, marriage retreat, youth event coming up. You heard about those things in the announcements. We have been studying through the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings in our series, which is titled Be Set Free. And here in the book of Exodus, we are reading a story of how God set the people of Israel free from literal bondage and slavery and brought them into freedom. And as we do that, we're considering how God wants to do these same things in our lives as well through Jesus. And so let's go ahead and read some of our texts this morning. Uh, Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. By the way, if you need a Bible, go ahead and put your hand up in the air and we'll make sure that our, one of our ushers gets you a Bible so you can follow with us. If you read on your phone, we encourage you to use the version Bible app, and there's even some live notes in there where you can follow along with uh, slides and interact and stuff like that. So Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they set out for Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Moses, or there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and offered, or, and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak and, you may, and may believe you forever. When Moses told the words to the, uh, of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not, not to go into, up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. And this morning, Lord, we would like to have attentive ears and open hearts and ask that you speak to us. And Lord, let us hear what you're speaking to us and let us apply it to our lives. Let it sink down into our lives like a seed into good soil that, that you water and it produces much good fruit in our lives for your glory, for the good of other people around us and for our good as well. So Lord, we, we ask this in Jesus' name and we ask that you bless this study. Amen. For three nights, you wouldn't have found anyone sleeping. In the late hours of the night, you'd find them huddled in little groups outside of their tents, talking, conversing, contemplating, discussing. Even though they craved sleep, their bodies desired sleep, yet their minds were racing, full of curiosity and anticipation. What's it going to be like? That's the question that was on everyone's mind. What's it going to be like? How's it going to happen? You see, there was the, the most creative amongst them had all kinds of ideas, I'm sure, and then there were others who just simply listened, but everybody was interested. What's it going to be like? How's he going to do it? How's it going to happen? How is he going to come? For about a year now, they've been on this journey. They've seen God do one amazing thing after another. They had cried out to him when they were in Egypt, when they were in slavery and bondage, suffering under an evil tyrant who... who forced them into slave labor, who took their children from them and murdered them and, and gave them impossible tasks to do and then punished them when they weren't able to do the impossible tasks. And so they cried out to God to save them from this situation and God heard their cries and set them free. And following that, they saw 10 incredible signs of God's power and might and his authority over nature and everything in the world. And then God guided them and they saw the signs, a cloud by day and fire by night. They watched as God caused the Red Sea to split in half so that they could cross over on dry land. And they witnessed God's provision for them in the desert, providing them with water to drink and food to eat in miraculous ways. And now they've come really to the end of this journey, or, or at least to the end of this leg of the journey. They've come to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And they're going to spend the next 11 months camped here at the base of Mount Sinai. And then this message comes, God calls to Moses and God says to Moses, tell the people to get ready because in three days from now, in three days I'm going to show myself to the people, in three days from now I'm going to come down upon the mountain in a way that the people will see and they will hear me speaking to them. Now imagine what you would have said if you would have gotten that news. Imagine how you would have reacted to that news. I imagine that I would have been pretty excited. Maybe you too. Maybe you would say, 
this is amazing. I'm going to hear the voice of God. I'm going to see God descend in a visible way. And some of us might say, you know, I would do anything to, to experience something like that, to see that, to hear that. But I'll tell you this. We're going to read this story. I don't want to give it away. But by the end of this story, rather than hoping that this experience would last forever, these people are going to be begging that it would stop. It's not exactly what you'd expect, right? And and yet, this is such an important text for us to read and understand because only if we understand this text and what we see here can we really appreciate the gospel. Can we really understand the meaning of Jesus coming to us and the message of the gospel. So the title of today's message is Crossing the Line. Crossing the Line. There are three things that we're going to see in this text. First of all, we're going to see an invitation to relationship. Secondly, we're going to see a line that must not be crossed. And thirdly, we're going to see when God appears. So an invitation to relationship, a line that must not be crossed, and when God appears. So first of all, we, we, we see an invitation to a relationship. You know, this mountain, its name is Mount Sinai. And in, in a way, that's a little bit misleading, but it's not terribly misleading. It's misleading because we would tend to think Mount Sinai must be in the Sinai region, which is a peninsula, which is modern-day uh, part of Egypt. Uh, but in reality, all of the evidence points to the, the fact that this mountain, which, although it's called Mount Sinai, is actually in Arabia. Modern-day is kind of the northwestern corner of Saudi Arabia. Now, to us in Colorado, this shouldn't be all that uh, hard to understand, right? Like, we've got Loveland Pass, which is nowhere near Loveland, and we've got Berthoud Pass, which is nowhere near Berthoud. And, you know, when my wife moved here, she was very confused by this. She's like, why is it called Berthoud Pass? It's nowhere near Berthoud. That's just what it's called. I mean, I didn't, I didn't choose that. That's just how they named it, right? Now, and I would see that Mount Sinai was a similar thing. It was called Mount Sinai, but it's actually located in Arabia. And there are several reasons why we believe that. I'll give you three reasons. First of all, there are archaeological and geographical regions. There is a mountain in modern-day Saudi Arabia called Jabal al-Lawz. And this, uh, this mountain has many of the same features and even some archaeological reasons to believe that this was the place that these events happened. In fact, the government of Saudi Arabia has this site designated as an archaeological site, and they claim that this is the place that's mentioned here in Exodus. The second reason to to think that the mountain is actually in Arabia is in Galatians chapter 4, verse 25, Paul's talking about the difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. He's drawing this parallel, but he refers to Mount Sinai as Mount Sinai in Arabia. So that's also pretty clear. The third reason is, is actually found right here in our text. On your note sheet, for those of you taking notes, or for those of you who write in the margins of your Bibles, I would encourage you to jot this down. Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. So where it says that they camped there at the base of the mountain, write this, Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. Just a little over one year before these events taking place now, maybe you remember the story, Moses was out working for his father-in-law as a shepherd, watching his father-in-law's sheep. And and shepherds would often be out for days, weeks, sometimes even months at a time as they led their sheep through, you know, uninhabited areas looking for pastures for them to graze in. And so one day, Moses is out with his sheep and he sees a bush that's on fire, but yet 
it's not consumed by the fire. And so he says, this is weird, this is interesting. So he goes over and he takes a closer look at it. And when he gets close to it, God speaks to him out of this burning bush and says, take off your shoes, the place you're standing is holy ground. In other words, God says, this place you're standing, you are in my presence, I am coming, I'm here to meet with you. And it was then that God told Moses that he was to go to Egypt and that God was going to set the people of Israel free from slavery and bondage. And he was going to use Moses to do that and to lead them. And so in chapter 3 of Exodus, verses 11 through 12, this is what we read. Moses said to God, But who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You will worship God on this mountain. It's all come full circle. We're we're now back here in chapter 19, back where it all began. Back at the foot of the mountain where God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. I, I wonder if there wasn't a night, an evening when Moses was outside and people were just kind of, you know, doing their thing at the campsite and, and Moses grabbed a couple of his, his friends, a couple of the men and said, hey, you guys got anything going on right now? You want, you want to see something? Come, come here. And they're like, well, where are we going, Moses? He said, just follow me. And they walked a little bit away from the camp, maybe over a a hill or a ridge or two. And then Moses stopped and he said, that's it. Right there, that's it. And they said, that's what? And he said, the bush, that's the bush. And they're like, no, wait, no way, the bush, that's the bush. Moses said, yep, that's the one. That's where God spoke to me. They're like, that's the burning bush. Can we touch it? And he was like, do whatever you want. It's just a bush, right? God had given him a promise when God spoke to him through the bush. Next time you're here, it's going to be with a big group of people, and you're going to worship me on this mountain. And now that was the sign, this is the place, and now here he is. God calls to Moses, and he says, come up to the top of the mountain. He tells Moses that, here's why I've brought the people here. He says, I brought them here because I want to enter into a covenant with you. Is a special kind of relationship. You know, the word covenant is kind of an archaic word in English. It's a word that we don't use very much nowadays. In fact, it's even hard to say, okay, well, what does a covenant look like? What is a covenant relationship? The one kind of relationship that we have today in our modern day that could still be described as a covenant relationship is marriage. This might maybe the only kind of relationship like this. In fact, throughout the Bible, God frequently uh, relates his relationship with his people to marriage. He uses that as a, as a, a descriptor to describe his relationship with his people. He uses marriage. He even says that his purpose in creating marriage was to give a picture so that people could live it out and ex- understand the kind of relationship that he wants to have with his people. So what is a covenant relationship? A covenant relationship is a relationship which is predicated on promises which the two parties make to each other. That's why we take vows when we get married, right? We say, do you take this woman, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded wife, your lawfully wedded husband to have and to hold, to love and to respect for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, forsaking all others, be joined only to them, so help you God. And what do we say? We say, I do. What are we doing? We're, we're making promises. We're taking vows. Those are the basis of that relationship. That's a covenant relationship. That's reflected here in this text. It's very clear from this invitation in verse 5. God says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. And all the earth is mine, he says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he says in verse 7, 
Or it, the text says in verse 7, when Moses came and he told the people about God's offer, his invitation to a relationship, this covenant that God was entering into with them, the people said enthusiastically, yes, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. We will do it. See, it even sounds like a marriage proposal. You know, will you? And they say, yes, we will. A covenant relationship is different than a consumer relationship. See, in so many, in our society, so many of our relationships are consumer relationships. And that's why it's sometimes hard for us to switch over. See, in a consumer relationship, you say, if you give me what I want and you give me a good deal on it, then I'll give you something in return. But if you don't give me what I want or I can get a better deal somewhere else, well, then I'll go there. That's the kind of relationship I have with my butcher. Now, I like my butcher. We have a relationship. We chat it up when we meet each other, right? I know him. He knows me. It's the kind of relationship I have with my barber. I talk to my barber. We have a relationship. We know each other. But at the end of the day, it's a consumer relationship. There's an exchange going on. They're providing me with a service, and in return, in exchange, I'm giving them something for their services. But in a covenant relationship, it's different. In a covenant relationship, you choose a person not for what they can do for you, but you choose them for who they are. And you enter into an agreement with them in which you make promises to them. You commit yourself to faithfulness to that person. And you make promises about what each of you are going to do in this relationship. But of course, sometimes people do approach marriage as a consumer relationship rather than a covenant relationship. And that's one of the reasons why some marriages fail. I mean, imagine if God would have treated us in that way. We, we would have no chance. Like he would say, you will be my people and I will be your God. You know, I mean, unless, unless you know, like uh, I fall out of love with you or somebody else comes along or you know how it goes, right? So, and then, well, you know, right? But that's not what God did. God was inviting us into a covenant relationship. He was inviting them into a covenant relationship. He was committing himself to them like a groom commits himself to his bride on the wedding day and makes promises and vows of love and faithfulness to them. So on God's part, here's what he says. He says, not only have I already done these things, right? Like I've already saved you. And by the way, that's how it always begins. Relationship with God always begins with what he has done not with what we have to do. So he says, here's what I have done. I've already saved you out of Egypt, brought you out of bondage. I've carried you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. And not only have I placed my love upon you, but now I'm promising you something. I'm promising you my faithfulness. I'm promising you a new identity, a new calling, a new purpose and direction in life. You will be my treasured possession out of all the world, I choose you, and you will be part of my mission in the world. You will be my representatives to all the nations of the world, a new identity, a new calling, a new purpose, and a new goal in life. And by the way, God offers these same things to you today in Jesus, a new identity, a new calling, a new purpose and direction in life. Of course, there are two parts to this covenant, right? So there's what God is promising to do, but the question is, what is Israel's part in this covenant? What's their promise and here's what it is, complete and total obedience, perfect obedience. God tells Moses, okay, so that's all I'm asking, just complete and perfect obedience. Can you guys do that? Why don't you go down the mountain, Moses, and you ask the people, is this something you can do? And so Moses says, okay, he goes down the mountain, he says, okay, here's what God says. God's going to enter into a covenant with us. From his part, he's already done so much. He saved us, he's blessed us, and now he's promising faithfulness to us. He's going to make us into something great. He's going to make us part of his mission. He's, going to sa he's saving and redeeming the world. He wants us to be part of that. And here's our part. 
in this covenant. Here's what he's asking from us. Complete and total obedience. He says, well, what do you guys think? You think that's something you can do? And the people say, of course, you betcha. That's what we do best. No problem. We're, we're super good at this. Like, we got this. No problem. Now, what's going on here? Well, in a way, God is kind of setting them up. Okay, he, what do I mean? Setting them up for what? Well, he's setting them up to show them something very important, a very important truth about who he is and who they are and about what the only basis is for a relationship that can exist between the two of them. So God's inviting them into a covenant relationship with him, but it's a covenant relationship which he knows that they're not going to keep their part of the covenant. They're not going to be able to keep it. Now, see, they don't realize that at this point. At this point, they think this is going to be a cinch. Like, be perfect, perfect obedience, no problem. Like, we got this. That's our specialty. We're super good at that. It's kind of what we do best. They're very confident in their ability to do it. And I'll add this. I do not doubt for a second that they were absolutely sincere in saying that, right? Like, I believe that they sincerely thought that they could do this. Not only do they think that they could do it, but I I do believe that their intentions, they were well-intentioned, that they wanted to do this. They wanted to serve God and please God. And honestly, in their heart of hearts, they were responding and saying, yes, God has been so good to us. We will obey him in everything. It's just that, see, their confidence in themselves and their ability to keep this covenant was misguided. It was misplaced. And here in chapter 19 and in the chapters that follow, God is going to bring the Israelites face to face with the reality of who he is and who they are and the fact that there's a massive gap between them. You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person, someone might say. I'm certainly better than other people out there, right? Like, there's, like for example, I've never done this bad thing or I don't do that bad thing. And some people do that thing, but not me. I don't do that, right? And like, uh, here's a list of all the things I do do, by the way. Uh, The question is, though, when you say that you're a good person or at least gooder than someone else, I realize that's not a word. I'm doing that on purpose. But so the question is, who determines what good is? What's the standard? And furthermore, how good do you have to be to be good enough? Like, who says? How do we know? Over the next few chapters, God's going to give them that standard of what it means to be good and and how good is good enough. It's kind of like this. Picture this. Picture that you're really good at jumping. Like, you are super good at jumping. You're better than most people at jumping. And so God says, okay, okay, here's the deal. In order for us to have a relationship, you just have to come over from where you're at over to where I'm at. There's a little bit of a gap But if you can jump over that gap, then you're good, right? Then you'll be with me. And you say, I can do that because I'm really good at jumping. In fact, I'm better than most people at jumping. And so then you get to the gap and God says, all right, come on over. And then you realize you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. I was thinking about Wile E. Coyote, right? Like, you know how he always runs off the cliff? And sometimes he runs really far off the cliff, but it's never enough, right? And so it's kind of like, people might be jumping over this gap, but everybody's falling down. You might jump twice as far as the person who jumped before you, but you're still like several thousand feet short of actually jumping over that gap. So no matter how good of a jumper you are, you're not able to clear this gap. And that's what the people of Israel don't realize at this point. They don't realize how massive this gap is between them and God. That's what God really wants to impress upon them in this chapter. No matter how good they might be compared to other people, no matter how well-intentioned they might be, the gap is too wide. And the same is true for us. But the question kind of that this begs from us is this. 
Why would God invite them into a covenant which he knows they're not going to be able to keep? Now, the reason is to show them something very important. And we're going to see what that is in just a minute. But before we get to that, I want to go on to our next point, which is this. Uh, The next thing we see in the text, which is a line that must not be crossed. So not only is there a gap, there's also a line that must not be crossed. In verse 8, we read that Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. What were those words? Those words that, yeah, we got this. We can do this. Total obedience. No problem. And it says in verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, okay, so go tell the people, consecrate themselves today and tomorrow. Wash their garments and be ready for the third day because on the third day, I will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. So Moses goes down the mountain and he says, okay, people, you got to get ready because God's holy so you got to wash your clothes. you got to get cleaned up. you got to be clean and pure in order to stand before God. And then God says, but there's one other thing I need you to do. I need you to set limits. I need you to set a boundary for the people all around the mountain and tell them, make sure you do not go to the mountain or even touch the mountain because whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Death? Does yours say that? Because that's that's kind of surprising, right? Like, so Moses goes down the, the mountain, and he, he creates this perimeter, kind of like, you know, Little League, you get the chalk machine, drives the chalk machine all the way around the mountain. He's probably actually doing it with a stick, probably putting some rocks there to make sure that everybody knows where the line is so nobody crosses the line. And he tells the people, okay, guys, see this line? God said, you can't cross the line or else you're going to die. Because God's going to come down on that mountain, and this is as close as you can get. You can't get any closer. You can't cross this line. If you cross the line, we have to put you to death. That's pretty intense, right? In fact, if you read the next thing, it says that if somebody crossed the line, they were to shoot him with arrows or throw a big rock at him, because if you were to go in there and, I don't know, grab him and strangle him or something, then you'd cross the line, and then you'd have to be put to death too, and it'd just be a big domino effect of, of people dying. And so if anyone crossed the line... I mean, it was like really serious. So what's all this about? God's telling the people, he's saying, look, there are boundaries. There are boundaries. And you can only come so close to me because I'm an almighty God. I'm perfect. I'm majestic. I'm holy. And you, well, you're not. And because of that, there's distance between us. And if you cross the lines that I've set up, the consequence is death. And at the end of the chapter, God calls Moses back up on the mountain and he tells him, you know, and keep in mind, Moses is 80 years old. He's just going up and down this mountain like every day, right? You imagine Moses getting to the top of the mountain. Okay, God, I'm here. What's the message? And God says, okay, so I want you to go back down the mountain and tell the people, remember that line? No, I'm really serious about that line. Like, don't cross the line. Moses is like, no, 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 I told him already. We got it. We're good. And God says, no, I want you to tell him again because I'm really serious about that line. And he says, even the priests, I don't care if they're priests. It doesn't matter how clean the person has made themselves. They can never be clean enough to approach me. Again, God wants them to understand something. He wants them to understand there's a massive gap between who he is and who they are. He dwells in unapproachable light. He's God. He's holy. He, see, we need to understand. They needed to understand. You can't be too casual with this God. He's not your buddy that you punch in the arm and slap on the back. He's not your bro. He's the almighty God. They need to have, we need to have, an appropriate fear of the Lord. And over the next few chapters, God's going to lay out the terms of this covenant, including what we call the Ten Commandments. 
This line that they were not to cross, this physical line in the sand, this was a physical representation of what those commandments represented. These are the lines which must not be crossed. And if they are crossed, the penalty, the consequence would be death. This is the same God who said to the very first people, Adam and Eve, he said, here's the line, don't cross it. If you do, you will surely die. And of course, we know what happened. They did cross that line. In the book of Romans, we're told that the wages of sin, the wages of crossing the line is death. That's the the penalty for crossing the line. And yet it says there in Romans that all people have sinned. In other words, there's not a single one of us who hasn't at one time or another crossed the lines that God's laid out. That physical line around the mountain was a symbol of the distance between us and God. It represented our inability to approach God. God, that no matter how much we try to cleanse ourselves or clean ourselves or or clean ourselves up, we'll never be good enough to come to God, at least not on our own. So what can be done? Well, that's the most surprising part of the story. But before we get to that, let's talk about this next part of our text, which is this, when God appears. Okay, so when God appears, verse 16 It says, on the morning of the third day, the day they'd been waiting for, waiting up every night, discussing what's it going to be like. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. He said, okay, guys, now you can approach the line, but don't cross it. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it up, uh, smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the uh, to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Do you know what it would have been like to be there when this happened? I mean, it almost sounds like a volcano, right? Like a volcano blast is happening. You know what it would have been like? It would have been absolutely terrifying. The Lord covered himself in dark clouds so that the people would not be able to see his glory. They'd be able to hear him, but they wouldn't be able to see his glory because even a sliver of his glory would have been enough to kill them. This is how God appeared on that day, in life-threatening, terrifying majesty and ferocious awe. And it says in Exodus chapter 20, the next chapter, which we're going to look at next week, but I want you to see this part. Exodus chapter 20, this same scene, right? Still fire and smoke and clouds and God speaking. It says this, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood off and said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. See, at first, when they heard the news that God's going to appear and then they're going to hear the voice of God, they were probably pretty excited. I know I would have been. But when it actually happened, after only just a few minutes, they begged for it to stop. They said, it's too much. We can't take any more. This is more than we can handle. They were scared. They were intimidated. They were shaken to their core. And here's what Moses said to them. In the, still in chapter 20, he says, Do not be afraid, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, so that you may not sin. In other words, there's an appropriate fear of God that he wants you to have. 
We need to understand the distance between us and him. See, the fear of the Lord that, that prop, means proper reverence and respect for who God is. It means knowing your place, understanding how holy and great he is, how much higher he is than us. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the starting point, knowing who God is and who you are in relation to him. Because there will be days when you'll be tempted to cross the line. And it's important to have this fear of the Lord in your heart. But furthermore, think about this. Think about what God is saying to them here. Remember, they had agreed to enter this covenant, and they had promised, yes, we'll do it, no problem, complete, total obedience. And then what happens in verse, or chapter 20, when they ask God to stop talking, what has he been saying? He's been giving them the Ten Commandments. And I'm sure that they were shaken to the core, not only because of the sound and the effects of everything going on, but also because of the content of these commandments, as they realized, oh, wait a second, what did we get ourselves into? We've already broken most of these. I mean, we've certainly broken them over the past couple months. In fact, we've probably broken some of these in the last five minutes. What now? What's God going to do with us? We've already broken the covenant before we even started. And so they say, we can't take it anymore. We're terrified. We're trembling. We're worried. And maybe you'd say, Nick, all right, I get it, right? But this is so Old Testament-y, right? Like, this is why, maybe you'd say, this is why I'm not so into the Old Testament, because it always seems to be, smoke and fire and the fear of the Lord and all this talk about crossing the line. Well, I just want you to see something. This is not just an Old Testament thing. Here's what Jesus had to say about this in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you and tell you who to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus says, There's no one on earth that you need to be really afraid of. But you know who you should have some fear of is God. Because he's the one who determines the eternal destiny of your soul. But here's what's interesting. Right after that, Jesus says something else, which is certainly not a contradiction, but it's definitely the other side of the coin. Here's what he says. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. What's he saying? He's saying this, you should have a proper fear of God. But if you are his, if you belong to him, then you have nothing to fear. Because if he cares that much about sparrows, how much more is he devoted to his own children? You know, for many of us, I would say this, our perception of God is too small. That's certainly the case with the people of Israel here. This is why this whole event is taking place. And it's important for us to have a healthy fear of God and a sense of reverence and awe and at the size of his greatness and the size of his majesty. But here's the other side of the coin. If you are his, that means that rather than being afraid of his power and might and holiness, you can find extreme comfort in it. If you are his, then you ought to be filled with an incredible sense of confidence, an incredible sense of courage, knowing that this mighty God is for you, not against you. And when you pray, this is the God that you're praying to. But check this out. Did you notice what happened in the last verse that we read in Exodus 19, where we left off reading? God appears, and the people are told, you must not cross this line. You cannot approach God. Not even the priests can approach God, no matter how clean you are. It doesn't matter. You can't possibly ever be clean enough to approach God. And then what happens? God says, oh, I, Moses, come on up here. And Moses goes up there. Like, how did that, what? He just told everybody you can't come. And then he invites Moses, and then he says, oh, hey, 
go back down there, and I want you to bring Aaron up with you too. And so these guys go up the mountain, and guess what? There's only one way to get up the mountain, right? You have to cross the line, the line which no one's allowed to cross. And God says, all right, you two guys, come on up here. And they do, and they don't die. That's interesting, right? What does that tell us? It tells us this. There is an incredible distance between us and God. There's no way for us to approach him unless, unless he calls you to himself. And he makes you fit and able to approach him and stand before him. And friends, let me tell you this. That is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That is the message and the hope and the good news of the gospel. Earlier I asked the question, why would God invite them into a covenant which he knows they're not going to keep? The reason is this, it's to show them something very important, which we ourselves need to see as well. That their relationship with him has always been and always will be based wholly on his grace, on God's grace. Think about it. When did God give them these commandments? Did he give it to them before he saved them out of slavery in Egypt? Or did he give it to them after he saved them out of slavery in Egypt? He gave the commandments to them after he already saved them. In other words, he didn't give them the commandments first and say, okay, here's the deal. If you guys can do these things, if you can do a good job keeping these rules, then I'll consider saving you. No, not at all. He said, no, I'm just going to save you because I want to, because I love you, and I place my love upon you, not because you earn it, just simply as an act of grace. You know, grace is defined as unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And now God's inviting them into this covenant relationship like a marriage in full knowledge that despite their best intentions in this moment, they will not keep the promises that they make to him. And yet he enters into it anyway. And even as he's giving them the Ten Commandments, the people realize that they've already blown it. Why enter into this covenant at all then? Here's why. Because God wants them to know that their relationship with him is based on his grace towards them from beginning to end and all the way through. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, at the end of his life, Moses gives this speech. That's what Deuteronomy is. And Moses tells the people, even when you didn't keep the, your part of the covenant, God always kept his part of the covenant. He was faithful even when you were not faithful. He entered into this covenant in order to bless you, in order to show you his goodness and faithfulness, in order to draw you to himself. It was grace from beginning to end. Here in Exodus chapter 19, God appeared in a way that struck fear in the hearts of all the people. He appeared in a way that communicated that he is unapproachable, that there is distance between us and him. But this wouldn't be the last time that God would appear. It wouldn't be the last time he would appear in a way that people could see, in a way that people could hear. Many years after this, God would appear again. But that time, not, as a, not in a firestorm, not in an earthquake, but in the form of a baby. In the form of a person who among many of his names and nicknames was to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that time he came, he didn't come to strike fear in the hearts of men. He came to bring comfort and joy and peace. And he came to take away the barrier which stands between humanity and God once and for all by bearing our judgment, by paying for our sins. You see, on the cross, Jesus died. And through his death, he became that bridge spanning the massive Grand Canyon-sized gap between us and God. 
For all the times that we crossed the line, he died in our place. And on the cross, as he breathed his last, we read that the curtain in the temple, again a barrier, a separation, something that separated the people from God's presence and God's holiness, it was ripped in half from top to bottom. In essence, God was saying, it's open, come in. I've made a way for you to approach me. I have made you fit to approach me because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. I'll just wrap up by saying this. Here's what all of this means for you. Like them in our story, God has invited you into a relationship with him. Like them, there is a massive gap between God and you. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has bridged the gap. He has taken the penalty for your sins. And if you will receive what he's done for you, then you can boldly cross that line and approach God and come to him and know him as father and you as his child. And if that's the case, then you can come to him with so much confidence and so much boldness, knowing that all of that power and might, and with it he is fully committed to you. And it's in light of that that we can give ourselves fully over to him. It's a, and we can live in this new covenant based on what Jesus has done for us. And we can give ourselves to him who gave himself for us. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your holiness. We thank you for your greatness. And we thank you, Lord, that in Jesus you have invited us to cross that line and approach you. Thank you that in Jesus we are fit to come to you. Lord, I pray that that sense of your greatness and holiness would be in our hearts and our minds this week and that we would pray to you knowing that that is the kind of God you are and that we would have that reverence and awe for you, that awe for your greatness and size and might. And that it would change the way that we live and the way that we think. That it, For those of us who have given our lives to you, that it would fill us with confidence. And Lord, if there's anyone here who says, I, I don't know if I do belong to him. I don't know if I am his. I don't even know where I stand with him. Lord, I pray that today they would accept this invitation to relationship, this invitation predicated on your grace from beginning to end. So we thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.